Heavenly Father, we just love you so much, and we are thankful for the privilege we have to be here this morning together. Uh, family, my brothers and sisters uh, in Christ, and we have this incredible privilege to, to study your word. And uh, God, please, please don't let us take that for granted. Remind us every day how blessed we are to hold your words in our hands and that we can, we can hear from your heart as we study them, that you speak to our lives and you challenge us and you grow us through your spirit and through your word. And we ask that you do that this morning. God, would you speak to us as we continue to study on the life of your servant, Joseph. And God, please, as I say often, please don't let us leave this place the same. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week, I read a story. I actually went looking for a story like this, so it's not like I stumbled across it, okay? But I read a story. It's a true story uh, about a Canadian man from Toronto. His name was Anton Pilippa. And Anton went missing in 2012. 2012, Anton, who suffers from mental illness, believed to be uh, schizophrenia, he left no clues as to where he had gone. And his family was worried uh, for his safety. His brother Stefan said, after he disappeared, the family notified police. They checked the shelters and jails and morgues. They looked for any trace of him but the search turned up no leads. And so with no idea where Anton had gone, the family was left to wrestle with pain and grief. They were worried. His brother said, I found, my, I found myself being really frustrated all the time, always having some aching question like, where is he? What happened to him? Well, in 2017, after five years of grief, the family received a phone call with the unbelievable news that Anton had been found. He had been found over 6,000 miles away, wandering near a highway in Brazil from, from Toronto, Canada. A police officer spotted him shuffling down a dirt track in bare feet in dirty Bermuda shorts and a vest. He had no passport and he was without any form of identification. Having traveled by foot for most of the journey, Stefan says that his brother had one bizarre mission. He wanted to get to the National Library of Buenos Aires in Argentina. But, and he made it. But tragically, when he finally made it to the library, after walking thousands of miles, he was turned away because he didn't have any identification. <laughs> thousands of miles. So he turned around and he began his trek into Brazil where he would eventually be found. And after being returned home to his family, Anton said, I know that I am very lucky to be alive. I'm very happy to be able to return to my family. And when Stefan, his brother, was asked, what's next? What's next for Anton? Stefan said, for now, we just want to hold him close. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the relief that they must have felt when they found out that Anton was still alive? Five years they wondered if he was dead. Well, today, in our continuing study of the life of Joseph, we're going to read about something very similar. Like Stefan being reunited with his brother Anton, Jacob is finally going to be reunited with his favorite son, Joseph. Only in this story, the missing person is not found homeless, wandering around without shoes and Bermuda shorts, right? Far from it. In this story, Joseph is found wealthy and serving in, in a position of great power and authority in Egypt. He's the second most powerful man in all the land. Now, when we left off last week, Joseph had just revealed his true identity to his brothers. And you remember, they were, they were speechless, right? They were not only speechless, they were terrified, right? They were scared. But rather than punish them for all that they had done, Joseph extended mercy and grace to his brothers. He tells them that it was God 
was the one who had sent him to Egypt. What they, did, what they had done, it was wrong, right? It was wrong what they had done, but God had used their sinful behavior for good. God sent Joseph to Egypt so that Joseph would be in a position where he could provide for his family. So Joseph told his brothers that, that they need to go home, right? He said, you need to go home and you need to tell dad what you've seen here. Tell dad what's happened for me. Tell dad about how much I have been blessed. And then tell him to pack up the family and come down here to Egypt where I can provide for you. And that's where we left off, the end of chapter 45. Uh, sorry, it wasn't the end of chapter 40. It was in the middle of chapter 45 at verse 15. So today we're going to pick up in Genesis chapter 45, and we're going to start right there in the middle at verse 16. Genesis 45, 16. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers have come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. And take your father and your, and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you will eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours." So when Pharaoh receives word that Joseph's family has arrived from Canaan, the text says that Pharaoh was, he was pleased, right? He's genuinely happy for Joseph to be reunited with his family. He wants to make sure that Joseph's family is well taken care of. Pharaoh doesn't want Joseph to have to be worrying about his family back in Canaan as this famine continues. It's already been two years of famine. There's still five years to go. And he knows that, that, he, that if, if Joseph's family is back in Canaan, he's going to be worried about them. So he says, bring them down to Egypt. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, bring them down to Egypt. He says he's going to give Joseph's family the very best of the land. Pretty amazing, right? I mean, it goes to show just how much Joseph was loved and respected in Egypt. Joseph's family became the recipients of the king's blessings, not because of anything that they had done, but simply because of the relationship that they had with Joseph. Think about that for a second. Does it sound familiar? The Bible says that as Christians, we have become the recipients of God's blessings because of our relationship with Jesus. We've become sons and daughters, not of some little king like Pharaoh. We've become sons and daughters of the king of the universe. Because of our relationship with Jesus Christ, we have become recipients of God's blessings. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then Paul, he goes on, he goes on to list many of those spiritual blessings. And I don't have time to read Ephesians 1 for you today, but I would encourage you to do it on your own. But Paul says that, that in him, in Jesus, we've been chosen and adopted, predestined as God's children. In him, we've been redeemed. He's fully paid the price for our sins. In him, we have obtained a heavenly inheritance. Anybody looking forward to their heavenly inheritance? And that inheritance, according to, to Ephesians chapter 1, is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit whom we have received in him. Paul says that we have been blessed in Jesus, in Christ, we have received all these blessings, not because of something that you and I have done, but because of what he has done, because of our relationship with him. Verse 21 says, the sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them, he gave a change of clothes 
But to Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father, he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Joseph's brothers, they had come down to Egypt with nothing more than their donkeys and a little bit of money and some empty bags that they were hoping to fill with grain, right? Now they are heading back to Canaan and they are riding in style, you know? They're not, they're not just dragging a donkey along. They have, they have at Pharaoh's command, not even just like at Pharaoh's blessing, but at Pharaoh's command, they have, they have wagons and they have provisions. This would be like if, if you showed up at church today, you, you came in and you were driving your modest, I don't know, what's a good modest car? Some sort of like a, a, a Honda Civic, all right? Who said that's modest? I actually like Hondas a lot. Honda Civic is a sweet car. All right, so you come in in your modest car. I'll let you decide what is modest in your definition. But you show up in a modest car and we say, you know what? You need to ride home in style. We're going to send you out of here in a motorcade of limousines and load it up with supplies for your home and, and all kinds of the best things that Fayette has to offer. <laughs> like trees and leaves, maple syrup, maybe, some deer, venison. But we send you home with all this stuff in a motorcade of limousines. What would your neighbors think as you're pulling into the neighborhood? Can you imagine? They'd think somebody died, right? How absurd would that look? This is, this is just absolutely over the top. And in addition to all of this, Joseph gave each of his brothers some brand new Egyptian designer clothing, right? This is, this is designer clothing, handmade in, in Egypt. I'm wearing Egyptian clothing this morning, actually. It's fine designer clothes here. And for Benjamin... For Benjamin, he doesn't give him just one set of these, these designer clothes. He gives him five sets, and he also gives him 300 shekels of silver. And you're like, that doesn't mean anything to me, because how much is a shekel, right? Well, it's about 120 ounces, or seven and a half pounds of silver. Now, what's interesting is that 22 years earlier, they had sold Joseph for just 20 shekels of silver. And now Joseph is giving back to his youngest brother 15 times that amount. You think Joseph is wealthy? Man. On top of all that, Joseph also sends his father 20 donkeys loaded with all the finest gifts that Egypt has to offer, as well as food for the journey. Can you imagine what this must have looked like? I mean, this is the myth. They're in the midst of a famine, right? And so if back in Canaan, everybody's like struggling just to make ends meet. And all of a sudden, this caravan of these elaborate, you know, Egyptian covered wagons come and rolling in with, with donkeys and food. And there's Joseph's brothers. They had to have been wondering, you know, like what bank did these guys rob? You know, this makes no sense. But Joseph loads up his brothers with gifts and grain and food. And, and then before they leave, right before they leave, he says something really interesting. Verse 24. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. Now, you might be thinking, like, what on earth would they have to quarrel about, right? They've been forgiven by Joseph. He hasn't punished them. Not only has he not punished them, but he's actually blessed them with all kinds of resources, and he's ready to provide for them. He's saying, go back, get dad, come back here. I'm going to provide for you. What on earth would they have to quarrel about? Well, I don't know for sure, but I do think there is still the matter of coming clean with dad. We need to come clean with dad and, you know, and, and, and tell him that we've been lying to him for the last 22 years. We let him cry himself to sleep every night because Joseph was dead. 
Can you just picture the arguments between them on the way home? Who's going to talk? Who's going to say what? What are we going to tell dad? I can picture Reuben, right? You guys remember Reuben? Reuben's like, well, it wasn't me. I told them not to do it. You think they'd listen to me? They never listened to me. None of my brothers ever listened. Oh, they always listen to Judah. Judah this, Judah that, right? It's, this is Reuben, right? We saw him do that in chapter 42, didn't we? As soon as Joseph accused his brothers of being spies, Reuben says, I told you not to do that to the boy. I told you not to do it. Now there comes a reckoning, right? Genesis chapter 42. So Joseph tells his brothers, he says, listen, don't bicker. Don't quarrel. (laughs) God is blessing you. You guys have everything to be grateful for. So verse 25, they went up out of Egypt and they came to the land of Canaan to their father, Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb for he did not believe them. When Joseph's brothers arrive home, they they tell their father that Joseph is alive. And at first, the text says that his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. Jacob's like, what are you you talking about? What are you talking about? Joseph is gone. Joseph is, is dead. Is this some sort of a cruel joke? What is the matter with you boys, right? Jacob had lost all hope of ever seeing Joseph again, right? We've seen over and over throughout the story that even the mention of Joseph's name around Jacob just brings him to the point of despair all over again, to the point of grief. He didn't believe him, but in verse 27 we read, but when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he had saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Joseph's brothers, they, 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 you know, he doesn't believe him at first, but they continue to tell him about all the things that they saw in Egypt. They tell them all the things that Joseph had said to them. And then as, as he's hearing these stories, and then he looks around and he sees the wagons He's like, well, my boys, they are, there's no way they could pull that up. They might have been able to steal some silver and buy some nice clothes, but there's no way that they can rally up all these wagons and all these donkeys and all these supplies from Egypt. They must be telling the truth. You got to be kidding me. Joseph's alive. Now, it doesn't say it right here. It doesn't, doesn't mention it, but I would imagine this is the point where he says, how in the world is that possible? And this is the point where they probably told him what they had done, right? You, you can't imagine that Jacob wouldn't have asked the question at that point. I thought we found his robe covered in blood. I thought he was dead. Maybe not. Jacob's spirit revived. There's a proverb that says, hope deferred makes the heart sick but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Jacob's heart had been crushed years before, right? His hopes weren't deferred. His hopes were destroyed. But now, as he hears that Joseph is alive, it says he he was revived. He comes back. A piece of Jacob's heart, which had died long ago, began to beat again. And he says, you know what? Egyptian wagons, donkeys, you know, grain, food, clothes. I, I don't care who did what. It is enough. Joseph is alive. I'm going to go see him before I die. I don't care who did what. I just want to see my son. At this point, the only thing that matters to Jacob is that Joseph is alive. Which brings us to chapter 46, verse 1. So Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. When Jacob realizes that Joseph is alive, he gathers up everything he has, and he sets off for Egypt. He, he is all in. 
He's not looking back. He's not leaving anything behind. But as they leave Hebron and they begin to make their way south, Jacob makes an important stop in the ancient city of Beersheba. It's just 25 miles south of Hebron. Now, Beersheba is one of the places that we visited when I, when I went to Israel in June. In fact, I sent a video from, from Beersheba talking about how it's a very dry and weary land. Beersheba is located in a region of Israel called the Negev. It's a, it's a very dry, it's a desert region in the southern part of Israel. It's located 45 miles south of Jerusalem, and Beersheba was the southernmost city in the land of Canaan. In fact, as you read the Old Testament in the period of the kings and in the period of the judges, whenever they described the promised land, they would describe it as being from, from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. That's how they described the land. So this is the southernmost city in the land of Canaan. And so as he's getting ready to leave this land that had been promised to his, to his generations, to his, his grandfather, to his father, to him, and to their future generations, he stops in this final city of the land of Canaan. The name Beersheba literally means well of the seven, uh, also sometimes translated as well of the oath, because this is where Abraham made a covenant with Abimelech. Abraham gave Abimelech seven ewe lambs in exchange for the rights to a well at this location. I think I, think I have a slide with a picture of that. Uh, next slide. There's a, uh, there's a well right outside, there you go, right outside the gates of, of Beersheba. And uh, in fact, when we were there in Israel, uh, Dr. John was talking about this is a very peculiar type of well uh, because it has this little trough on the outside of the well. So the shepherds, when they come to the city, they would draw water out of the well and fill that trough so their sheep and their donkeys and their goats or camels could come up and drink out of that trough. And Dr. John talked about the idea that a good shepherd fills the cup until it is running over. Reminds us of our good shepherd in Psalm 23, right? Who fills our cup until it runs over. So this is Beersheba, uh, the well of the seven. And as Jacob leaves Hebron, he stops here at this final city in the land, and he stops to offer sacrifices and to seek the Lord. And verse 2 says, And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. God reassures Jacob and tells him not to be afraid to go down to Egypt. Why would God tell Jacob not to be afraid? Why do you think? Real, real obvious answer. Because he was afraid. Right? Jacob is afraid to go down to Egypt. So God says, don't be afraid. Why would Jacob be afraid to go down to Egypt to be with his son, the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. Well, here's a thought. Here's a thought. In Genesis chapter 15, when God made a covenant with Abraham, this is Jacob's grandfather, God promised this land in Canaan, right? It was a promise that he later reaffirmed with Isaac. Then he affirmed it again with, with Jacob. But God also told Abram something else in Genesis chapter 15. He told Abram that his descendants would end up as servants in a foreign land for a period of 400 years. Whoa. Genesis 15, 13 says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners, in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. 
So put yourself in, in Jacob's shoes for a moment. Abraham no doubt told Isaac, who no doubt told his son Jacob about this part of the promise. Yes, this is going to be our land, but there's also another thing about this promise that we heard from the Lord. He also promised that our people were going to be enslaved for 400 years in a land that's not their own. And so as Jacob is packing up the entire family, the entire nation of Israel with him, right? And he's heading south. He gets to the final city of the land of Canaan, this land of promise. And he says, whoa. Am I leading my family right now to the very place where we will become slaves? That's a heavy burden, right? Jacob says, God, I got to know. I have to know, is this your plan? So he stops and he offers sacrifices and he seeks the Lord. And what is the Lord's answer? The Lord's answer is yes, This is my plan. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you, and I'll also bring you up again. He did leave out a little minor detail 400 years later. So God says a lot, though, in these few words. First of all, he tells Jacob that, yes, go, because this is where I'm going to grow your family into a great nation. He also says that not to be afraid because because I am going with you. God says, yes, Jacob, I am going there with you. And finally, he says, and I'm going to bring you back into this land. Okay, good. God says, this is the plan, Jacob. You're good to go. Don't be afraid. And then finally, he reassures Jacob with the knowledge that, oh, by the way, you're going to see Joseph again. And not only that, Joseph is going to be by your side when you die. Joseph is going to close your eyes. Pretty amazing thought for Jacob, don't you think? Now, before we continue, I do want to make sure that we don't miss the fact that Jacob stopped to offer sacrifices and seek the heart of God. I don't know how long they were in Beersheba. It doesn't say. Was it a night? Was it two nights? Was it a week? I don't know. But I do know that Jacob did not go forward until he knew that this was God's plan. He was seeking God's heart as he stopped in Beersheba. And I just want to say that I I, I hope I hope that each of us will really apply that to our lives. You know, when you got to make a decision, when you got to make a decision, are you only relying on what makes sense to you or are you seeking the heart of God? Because sometimes God leads us into places that just don't even make sense to us, right? But when we know that we know that God is the one who's leading us, we can go forward with confidence and not be afraid, amen? Problem is, most of the time, we don't even bother to stop and ask, right? It's interesting how many times I find myself or I hear other people saying, I just don't know what God's will is. And if we're really honest, we can say, have you really asked? Are you really seeking his heart? Are you really seeking his will for your life? Or are you just doing what you think is best? It's pretty amazing. Jacob stopped. And it's a huge takeaway for our lives as well. What are God's plans? What does God want for us? Well, verse 5 says, Then Jacob sent out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and they came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Once Jacob knows that this is the Lord's plan, They leave Beersheba as an entire family, and they make their way down to Egypt. Now, at this point, the writer is going to provide a a list of the descendants of Jacob who came to live in Egypt. In verses 8 through 15, he's going to list out the descendants that are born to Jacob through Leah. In verses 16 through 18, he lists out the descendants born through Zilpah, who was Leah's servant. In verses 19 to 22, he lists out the descendants through Rachel. 
And then in verses 23 to 25, the descendants born through Bilhah, who was Rachel's servant. Now, I was really tempted, I really was, to, to read through this list for your enjoyment um, because I can really mess up some of these names for sure. Um, but I'm not going to read through that list of descendants. However, I do, before we just jump over it, I do want to take a moment to say just a couple things about genealogies in Scripture. Because all Scripture is God-breathed, right? So we know that these names are important. First of all, let's praise God that we have the genealogies listed out because from those genealogies, we can actually see the line that leads to the Messiah, Jesus. That's really important, isn't it? Because it was really important that, that, the, that the Messiah would come from the line of Judah, from, the, from David's house, right? So it's important that we have a lineage carefully traced out that leads Jesus back to David and to the line of Judah. Otherwise, anybody in Jerusalem could have claimed to be the Messiah. But this is a really important thing, that they be from that line. Secondly, one of the things I love about genealogies is that although it might feel like random names, right? You, you read them and you're like, I don't even know who this Beluga Luga is, right? That's, that's a made-up name, by the way. There's no Beluga Luga in, in Scripture. But you read the names and you're like, I, I don't know who that is. And it feels like just a list of random names, but they're not random at all, are they? Each one of those names represents a soul, right? A life, a life that matters to God, a life that was worth God sending his son to pay for their sins, right? But we, the fact that we have all these names, the only reason they don't mean anything to us is because they're not our names, right? But if my name was in there or your name was in there, that would be pretty meaningful, wouldn't it? You see, I, I love the genealogies because it shows me that every single person matters to God. He knows them just like he knows us. But for the sake of time, I'm not going to read uh, through. I probably could I told my wife, I probably could have read through the list faster than explaining why I'm not doing it. Um, and it would have been a lot more funny. Um, but no, you go back and you read them on your own this week. Verse 26, all the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were, uh, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's son's wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. So all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were, were 70. So after listing out all the individual you know, names, the writer says that the total number of Jacob's descendants when they first came down to Egypt, not including uh, the wives of Jacob's sons, the total was 70. Okay, so we know that they didn't include the, the wives, right, as, as part of the total number, but they were part of the total that came down, right? So let's just be clear. Sometimes we say there were 70 people who came down with Joseph. It's actually a number that's bigger than that, right? And, and there's, there's some confusion that pops up. I wasn't planning to necessarily talk about this. In fact, I eliminated it from my notes, but I'm going to say it anyway. When you get to the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 7, you guys know the story where Stephen is explaining the history of Israel, right? And something comes up in that explanation. He says that there were 75 people who came down to Egypt. Well, that's weird. Genesis says that there were 70. Stephen says there were 75. What is going on here? Is, it, is this some sort of a, of a discrepancy? Is this an error in the scriptures? And I only bring it up because you might run into this. Somebody might come up to you and say, see, you can't trust the Bible because one place it says 70, the other place it says 75. Listen, the point is, I'll give you an explanation for that in a second, but I want you to understand the point. The point is God brought down a relatively large family, but pretty small nation, wouldn't you say? 70 males, probably, I don't know, maybe there's 100, 120, 130, 40, I don't know, people. It's, it's not a very big nation at this point. And that's the point that the author wants you to understand, because what is small right now is going to bloom into a mighty large number. A huge nation is going to come up out of, uh, uh, of Egypt 400 years from now. Okay? Now, real quick explanation. Why 70, 75? Well, in, in the time of Jesus, in the time of Stephen, all of the Jews of that time would have read the Bible from the, the Septuagint. 
The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the Septuagint says at the end of Genesis, or in Genesis 46 here, says that there were 75 that came down. In Exodus chapter 1, same thing. The Septuagint says 75. So how did they get that number? Well, there's a lot of different explanations that people give for how you, know, you get at either 66, 70, 75. And, and some explanations suggest that, well, it's, the Septuagint was actually including some of the future sons and grandsons of Joseph that were already in Egypt. And if you add those up, there's a list later in Deuteronomy that gives that list of, of, of children of Joseph. You add them up, you get to 75. Another suggestion is that, well, he very clearly says not including the wives of, of, um, of Jacob's sons. Well, considering some that had already passed away, if you take the living spouses that showed up with Jacob and Israel, there's nine more spouses that could have come down. 66 plus nine is 75. I don't know. I'm not there, and I, and I can't ask Moses why he said 70, and I can't ask Stephen why he said 75, but don't miss the point, and don't let somebody throw you off and say, see, you can't trust the Bible because one says 70 and one says 75. The point is that God brought down a, a large family and blew them up into a huge nation over 400 years in Israel, I mean, in, in Egypt. Pretty amazing, right? All right, enough about that. Do I get a couple extra minutes today to... to okay, phew, whew, I'll go fast. Verse 28, verse 28. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. So you've got this large family coming down with, 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 with wagons and donkeys and, and all their goods. It, it was a large group, and you can imagine the trip back to Egypt was probably a little slower. Anybody who's traveled with... With young kids, you know there's a lot of stops along the way. But they're making their way down, and as they're uh, arriving in Egypt, Jacob decides to send Judah ahead to notify Joseph that they're arriving. That we're, we're here. Now, where are we supposed to go? We're supposed to go to Goshen. How do we get to Goshen? Where are we supposed to settle there? So they arrive at Goshen in the eastern Nile Delta. Let's talk about Goshen for just a minute. Last week, in Genesis 45, verse 10, when Joseph first revealed himself to his brothers, he said, he said I'm going to bring you into this land. I'm going to take care of you, and you're going to dwell in this perfect spot that I've picked out, the land of Goshen. Then in, in verse 18, which we read earlier uh, today, Pharaoh said that he was going to place Joseph's family in the best of the land of Egypt. The land of Goshen is an area in the northeastern part of the Nile Delta. This is, uh, the Nile comes from, from Lake Victoria, comes up through Africa, comes into Egypt, and eventually ends up in the Mediterranean Sea. It kind of fans out there. Well, actually, you could probably see it on the, on the, on the previous map, but it, it kind of fans out as it arrives to the, to, the, to the Mediterranean Sea, and it's a very lush and fertile land in Egypt. It's the best of the land. It's a perfect place for Joseph's family to, to raise crops, to sustain their family, and to provide for their herds. But more importantly, if you look at the location of, of Goshen in the northeastern part of Egypt, right on the edge of the border of Egypt, it's a great location for God to insulate and protect his people from being totally inundated and, and, and consumed into Egyptian culture, right? It also provides a, a pretty convenient location for 400 years from now when it's time to leave, right, in the northeastern part of Egypt. So when Jacob and his family arrived in Goshen, verse 29 says, then Joseph prepared his chariot and he went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I've seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph's like, would be nice if you could live for a few more days. <laughs> we got a lot of catching up to do, Dad. So, but what a moment, right? What a moment this must have been, right? 22 years now, Jacob has believed that his son is dead. Guess how old Jacob is? He's 130 years old at this point, you know? 
The last time he saw Joseph, Joseph was wearing the special coat. Remember that? And he sent him on a mission to go, you know, bring word, you know, go check on your brothers and bring word back to me on how they're doing. And Joseph ran off in his special coat. That's the last time he saw him. And now here he is. Joseph is alive. Joseph is all grown up. He has sons of his own. And he's no longer wearing that, that special coat, is he? He is wearing the finest clothes of Egypt. So Joseph comes before his father, and he, and he wraps his arms around his dad, and he begins to cry. And he cries, and he cries, and he cries. There's a lot of weeping in the story of Joseph. He cried for a good while, it says. And when the tears finally slowed, Jacob looks at his boy and he says, let me die since I have seen your face and I know that you are still alive. Which is to say, now I can die in peace, right? All the questions have been answered. I no longer have the grief of the loss of my son. I can now die in peace. It reminds me of the story of Simeon in, in the New Testament. You guys remember that story? We're actually going to be, uh, our next series will be starting in just a few weeks. We're going to be going through the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to come to that story of, of Simeon. And you might remember that Mary and Joseph brought the baby Jesus to Jerusalem, right? They brought him to the temple. And Simeon, this old man who had been, who had been praying and praying for the Messiah, he'd been told by God that, that you're going to see the salvation of Israel before you die. And when he sees Jesus, he takes Jesus into his arms and he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Pretty cool. Now I can die in peace. And that's what Jacob is saying to his son, Joseph. My boy is alive. I can die in peace. But Jacob doesn't realize that, that, that he's not going to die anytime soon. He's 130 years old, and he's probably thinking, I'm ready, right? But God's going to have much more for Jacob. He's got 17 years left to go. Man, 17 more years. Verse 31, Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock. And they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph you know, after the, all the weeping and, and, and the catching up with dad, he pulls the family together and he tells them that this is how it's going to work. This is, this is what's going to happen. Now, Joseph presumably has already, uh, you know, made plans with Pharaoh. He's already talked to Pharaoh and Pharaoh said, yep, bring him down, going to give him the best of the land. Joseph is thinking, I know where the best of the land is. That's Goshen. That's where I want them to be. So they don't even come to where Pharaoh is. They just come right to Goshen, Right? And he says, but you know, to make this official, Pharaoh is going to call. He's going to want to meet you. He's going to want to see you. And when he calls you, this is what you're going to tell him. You're going to tell him that you are shepherds. And then he says at the bottom there, because every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. And I'm thinking, like, wouldn't it be better to say that we're something that he likes? You know? But Joseph's got a plan here, right? Joseph understands that, hey, once Pharaoh knows that you guys are shepherds and you brought all these sheep in your herds with you, he's going to want to put you over in Goshen. He wants to keep you separated from the Egyptians because shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, you know, Joseph thinks this is his plan. Pharaoh thinks this is his plan, right? But we know that God is the one who's orchestrating all of these details, isn't he? God is going to use... God is going to use the disdain that the Egyptians had towards foreigners and specifically towards shepherds to provide his people with the perfect location where their flocks can be taken care of and where they can become a, a great nation and not be absorbed into the Egyptian 
culture. It's amazing. Next week, we're going to continue with the rest of the story, not the rest of it, but continue with the story in chapter 47. But for today, I want to close our time together with this. Last week in chapter 45, verse 5, Joseph said to his brothers, he said, God sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph, the beloved son of his father, was sent down to Egypt where he suffered unjustly as a servant, right? But God used his suffering to put him in a place where he could be exalted, right? And now, because he's been exalted, he's now in a position where he's in a position where his relationship with his brothers is going to now provide for that family. The same is true of our Savior, Jesus Christ. God the Father sent his beloved Son. And you know that his Son also suffered unjustly in our place, didn't he? And because of his suffering, because of his death, because of his burial, and because of his resurrection, the Bible tells us that he has now been exalted, right? And because he's been exalted and because he has paid the price for our sins, we can become recipients of God's blessings through our relationship with him. It is amazing to me to look at the parallels between the life of Joseph and the life of Jesus. As we conclude this chapter, we we see that Joseph has a place that's been all prepared for his family, right? A, A place in the land of Goshen. And specifically, he's prepared this place so that they can be with him. That's what he told them. He said, go get dad and come down here. I've got a place all prepared for you so that we can be together. It's a place where he can provide for them and they'll be together. In John chapter 14, John chapter 14, Jesus said this, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. That where I am, you may be also. Jesus is preparing a place for those who have a relationship with him. Man, do you long for that place? I can't even imagine. My prayer, my prayer is that every single one of us are truly ready to be there with him. We gotta ask ourselves the question, is my soul prepared to meet Jesus? You see, Joseph's brothers, you remember what happened last week, right? They had been reconciled into a right relationship with their brother and therefore are able now to be with him together. If you have not been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, you are not ready to meet him. You need to have your sins forgiven. Otherwise, that place that he's preparing, I mean, the the hard truth that we have to love you enough to tell you is that if, if, if you do not have a relationship with Jesus, the place that he's preparing is for his brothers and sisters. It's for God's children. And if you don't have a relationship with him, that place is not for you. That's the bad news. The good news is you can do something about that. The good news is you can come to Jesus and ask him to forgive you for your sins. You can turn away from your sins. That's what repentance is. Turn away from your sins and recognize that Jesus alone is capable of paying for those sins. He already did it. That he he wants to be your Lord. He wants to be your Savior. He wants to welcome you into the family of God. And so if you've never done that, if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, today's the day. 
Make today the day where you confess your sins and you turn to Jesus for salvation. And then you could literally walk out of here knowing that the place that Jesus is preparing, the place that he's preparing to be with his children includes you. Isn't that amazing? That's what we all want. And that's my heart as a pastor. My heart's desire, honestly, I have a lot of things that I really care about, but my greatest desire is that the people that I'm locking eyes with here every single Sunday is that each and every one of you would have that assurance of salvation. Amen? And so I'm going to just say this. If you've never put your faith in Christ, then today, would you take that bold step? After, after I'm done rambling up here, I'm, I'm just going to say this. Come and talk with me. I want to pray with you. I want to talk with you, answer any questions you might have, and, and let's, let's take care of the most important business that you'll ever take care of in your life. Amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I cannot possibly thank you enough that you sent your son to earth. You so loved the world that you sent your only son. He came and, and he was unjustly persecuted. He was sinless and he suffered. He suffered to the point of death. And because he suffered to the point of death and paid for the price for our sins, and because he was raised from the grave, we know that you accepted his sacrifice. And, and your word tells us you have exalted him to the highest place. And your word tells us that one day every knee will bow. Every knee. Every, every believer will bow before your son. Every non-believer will bow. Every atheist will bow before your son one day. But God, our prayer this morning is that we would choose to bow now. That we would choose to bow now while there's still an opportunity to be saved and to become part of your family. And so, God, I pray that if there's somebody here this morning who doesn't know you, that today, that they would be bold enough to take that step, to come forward, and to make a decision to surrender to you as their Lord and Savior, and become part of the family of God, knowing that right now, you, Jesus, are preparing a place for them, for us. I can't even imagine the place that you have prepared for us, Lord. We look forward to that day. We pray these things in the powerful name of your son, Jesus, our Savior.